Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. Thanks for joining us today. We've got two great guests for you. We have Mark Burtis, who's a career emergency manager. He's worked at the local level, the state level. Now he's with the university. And in his own words, you don't know what he does, but you know when he's done it wrong. And our second guest is Richard Smith, the Zen master of integrating data and being able to take the core emergency management work that's done and be able to explain it to different funders, different regulators, different stakeholders in whatever language they choose to ask for it in. We also get off on a couple of tangents. We get on a soapbox complaining about the way that exercises are done and why we think we can do a better job. And uh, we also lament over the lack of good research data and good evidence base to really define best practices in emergency management. But enough talk. Let's get right into it and hear what they have to say. All right, so joining the podcast now is Mark Burtis. Mark is the Director of the Office of Emergency Management for Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. Prior to that, he worked as the Director of Homeland Security and Emergency Management for Shelby County, Ohio, for five and a half years. And before that, he was one of eight field liaisons for the Ohio Emergency Management Agency in Columbus, where he worked statewide disasters and also administered the Emergency Management Performance Grants for 11 counties. He's also the President and Chief Innovator of Preparedness Solutions Incorporated. And uh, thanks for joining us today, Mark. It's great to have you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, just to start, I mean, it's, you've uh, bounced around emergency management. You've had a lot of great experience at the state level, at the local level, at, in uh, an academic setting now. Um, so how does your job um, uh, differ in these different contexts? How is it similar? Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you do? So so I, I think when you look at emergency management as a whole, if you're doing the basics, the uh, preparedness, mitigation, response, and recovery, it really is the same core principles at any level, whether it's been at the university where I'm at now, at the county level, the state level, or even when I work with private industries. It just seems to be uh, emergency management is emergency management in its purest form. And, and all forms of emergency management have politics that you have to deal with, you have to learn. And uh, I don't know, I, I've, always thought, I've always thought of myself as an emergency manager and never as a university emergency manager or a, a county emergency manager. I've always just been like an emergency manager. Uh, it's a very uh, emergency manager answer as well, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I try. I, I, I mean that in a good way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so in a disaster, then, what is the role? And maybe starting with your role as a local emergency manager and your experience there, although feel free to talk about, you know, in any of the various contexts you've worked within. Okay. So, so what's my role in an emergency? So uh, mainly, I think, when, when I – I help new emergency managers on board into the system. My my role is to let them know that people uh, freak out the moment you freak out. And so your your number one role is to always remain calm because people take their cues from you as an emergency manager. And you don't have to have all of the right answers, and you don't have to have all of the right equipment or resources, but you should have knowledge of where to get those answers or where to get those resources. 
And so I always tell people, I'm not a person who has things. I'm a people who knows people who has things. And, and I think that, that that is true across the board. Now, different nuances. Uh, the state level is kind of a kind of a weird place to do emergency management, I thought. Uh, you're, you're kind of serving people who distrust you, the county-level emergency managers. They just distrust you knee-jerk to, a, to an extent mm-hmm. because you're the state. And then you're not really fitting in with the FEMA coming in above you for the larger disasters, and, and you're having your issues with their requirements and what they're – and you don't really trust them, and it, it just seems to be you're stuck in the middle. I, I found it was a lot easier to be just a, an emergency manager at the local level. At the at the county level, that's pure emergency management. At the university, I would say it's a little less emergency management and a little more, I would say, uh, comfort management. Um, okay. So, so, and that differs to an extent. I have to worry about in a, in a county level. I have to worry about: Do I have people with houses? Do I have them? Do they have mm-hmm. adequate food, shelter, um, power strips at the shelters? And cooling stations when it's hot, warming stations when it's cold. At the university, we kind of assume that, that that infrastructure is there. If it gets too bad, we can cancel classes and send them home for an extent, uh, which is the worst-case scenario. We don't want to do that. But this isn't technically the ones on campus. This isn't their home. Right. And we can send them away. So when they're there, my biggest issues are, are there buildings without power? Are there buildings without Wi-Fi? Can they not stream Netflix tonight? And if that's mm-hmm. actually happening – they're going to start causing trouble. They're going to start causing uh, – they're going to look for things to amuse themselves. And 20-year-olds are really good at that, just not with what we would prefer. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have Netflix for a while, and I um, uh, got in a bit of – I started a podcast, so that's how I uh, – yeah, There you uh, go. See? <laughs> yeah. See, people get – they get up to no good when this happens. That's right, yeah. No, but you bring up an interesting point on sort of like this nature of distrust from the different government roles. I want to go back to that for just a second because it it seems like, you know, you mentioned that as an emergency manager, having access to the right information, things like that. Is there uh is there a lot of trust building that's a, a big part of what you do? How do you kind of overcome those so, trust barriers between so, local, state, federal? You, you know, I think it's time and seat. And then when nothing's going on, you have to make a conscious effort to to work on those relationships mm-hmm. you have to you have is this important to my state counterpart counterpartners right now mm-hmm. uh then i'm going to try and help them out whenever i can so one of my niches is exercises i that's, that's how you and i met that's that's, that's right what I, I that's what i do and i i do exercises and so my my counterparts at asu my counterparts at the state my counterparts in the counties side counties uh, that connect to ours I help out and foster relationships every day by just where can I help? Can I evaluate? Can I control? Can I design? How, how can I make your life easier now that we have nothing on our calendar that's going to require us to spend large portions of time um, responding to? I think that really is how, how those relationships work. You spend time over lunch at trainings together. You talk. You, you help each other out in your jobs day to day. And, and eventually you realize that, that person that from the state is just doing their job with whatever restrictions they have on them, just like you're trying to do your jobs with whatever restrictions your bosses and, and, and regulations are putting on you. And when you when you overcome that mindset, it really does help everyone just roll up their sleeves and get the job done. You know, that's a, that's a great point. And I know even in our class, uh, you and I went to the FEMA Master Exercise Practitioner course together. Guys, is that like almost 10 years ago now? It's, yeah, a little over 10 years. Yeah, April of 16th when we earned it, or April of 06 is when we earned it. So. Wow, wow. Dude. I know, we're old. 
I know it's weird being at a point to say 10 years ago, remember when we did anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, so I guess along those lines and around along how, you know, like you said, different folks from different agencies have different requirements, things like that. Um, how do priorities get determined in the preparedness phase and how does funding or regulation or things like that, do they have an influence on those priorities? Uh, what's your experience? So, yeah, I think my experience is a lot of our priorities just get determined by smart people having discussions based on, you know, past events current trends, or even our Thyra. So we, we do a Thyra at the university, even though we're not required to. Um, we, we use the Kaiser Permanente Hazard Vulnerability Assessment as the basis of that. We send it to all of our stakeholders throughout the university. We send it to our stakeholders in the community, the county, the state. We have everyone input their data. And we, we every two years, we come up with our top 10 things that we want to focus on. And that's what we, we kind of gear our planning and our, our trainings and our exercises to. But I think uh, a lot of times, when people are doing their priority fundings, if they're overwhelmed, they'll just look right at the grant guidelines or they'll look right at what their boss is telling them to worry about right at that minute. And that seems to uh, to cause you to whip back and forth uh, with pretty pretty rapidly at times. And I'm, I'm not sure that's the best way, but I've always found smart people in a room talking about what they're, what they're seeing, what the trends are, um, what they're hearing about. Uh, and then sometimes things like NIMS are handed down to you and they're attached to, like, huge pots of money, and they say, thou shalt. And so we mm-hmm. all look around, and we're like, okay, we'll, we'll do that. And, and I don't know if you remember the implementation in the early 2000s of NIMS, but I've had fire chiefs look right across the table at me and say, I don't care what you guys are doing. We're not going to do NIMS. We're not going to mm-hmm. do these incident commands. And I, I, I think back at the time, and I was thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's logical. I mean, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. And now I think back, now that we've all, like, fully implemented it, and we see how yeah. beautifully it works, I think, wow, I'm kind of glad the feds did that because we are really all on the same sheet of music now. And that seems to be a very good spot to be. So uh, a couple of quick acronym checks. So for uh, anyone who's not familiar, Thyra is the Threat and Hazard Identification Risk and Assessment, uh, which is uh, FEMA-coordinated but done by state and local jurisdictions who get emergency management funds, and NIMS, the National Incident Management System. So, again, just two great examples, like you said, of where, you know, you sort of take a federal perspective or a national perspective and really, um, maybe for lack of a better term, kind of force-feed requirements on state and local jurisdictions. But it... uh, um, it's not always all bad, is what you're saying, right? Is it right, kind of no. for, forced everyone to get on the same page? It, it did, and there was initially there was some growing pains, and, and there were some real arguments in counties. But the feds, by attaching it to money, kind of got us all to go there because everyone wants the money. And yep. it really, ten years down the road, thirteen years down the road, we all look around and we can't imagine how we ever did our job without it and without these these systems, the Homeland Security Exercise and Evaluation Program, where we all start designing exercises that kind of look and feel the same way. So from Maine to California, we can compare apples to apples when we're looking at after-action reports. Uh, These things have all been forced on us and made us make it a priority, but I have to say that I'm not opposed to that. Down the road, hindsight, you can look back and go, okay, I'm glad we got where we got to. A little bit of tough love, a little bit of money to help help the medicine go down and the uh, uh uh but but it but there's an added cost to this all joking aside right is that is that it takes time and there's a certain amount of trauma to sort of redo these systems to align to a national model and it takes time but uh but like you said ultimately ultimately pays off through better response better coordination unified language absolutely and and that that little bit of trauma for, for some jurisdictions 
um, was a lot harder. I mean, for almost the larger jurisdictions, it was harder to swallow because they had the money, they had the experience, and they had the they had the staffing levels to actually create something pre-NIMS that was working for them. The, the little right. jurisdictions, the rural jurisdictions, where I really cut my teeth as an emergency manager, they 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 were really lost in the wilderness and they had nothing. And when this came in, it gave them it gave them a way to to increase their preparedness levels uh, with good guidance, good training, good follow up, and funding that that they wouldn't have had prior to that. And so there, it wasn't quite as traumatic for the for the underserved or rural populations as it was for the the big cities that have their own way of doing things. So I want to shift gears just a little bit here, too, because um, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a loaded question, right? Because so often um, I'm in um, exercises or meetings or events with folks who don't normally interact with emergency management and sort of assume that emergency management has this control over everybody involved. And, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so uh, maybe you can help uh, enlighten us a little bit, too. So does the emergency manager, in fact, have total control over the situation? Uh, uh, help, Help set us straight on that one. So, so the answer is no. Um, we have whatever whatever we can sell our stock for pre-incident, immediately following or immediately during the incident is what that stock is worth. So if we've built those relationships and we've made those friends and we've identified those resources and we've we've facilitated the coordination and the trainings and the exercises, then then we have a little more control to exercise. If we're retired in place and we just sit there and we, we do all the thou shouts that the local emergency planning committee requires, that the state requires us to do, that the federal requires to do for the grants, uh, those those emergency managers find rather quickly that when they show up into a room, no one listens to them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, that's partly an emergency manager's uh, marketing problem. No one really knows what we do. I, I often joke and laugh and say my wife and my boss don't even know what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. And it's a half joke because they really don't understand the dynamics of it. I know my bosses know when I'm not doing it right, but they don't know that I'm doing it well sometimes. And I think that we do a bad job of explaining what we do. I mean, no one grows up watching the emergency manager TV show mm-hmm. like they do with cops or like they do with firefighters. There isn't one. And so we we show up at these meetings and we usually work behind the scenes and we work with the key stakeholders, but the general public – they they tend to not know what an emergency manager is, or they think we drive ambulances. And, and so when they do see FEMA, and if you say, well, I'm the county version or the university version of FEMA, then they're like, oh, then you have all the money, and you come in, and you save the day. Or you guys really botched it at Katrina. I've heard have had people tell me that, too. And I think that that it's changing. The more degrees that come available for emergency management as a discipline, as a career path, um, historically, we've been the retirement field for other first responders. So uh, there was a time when I got into this in the early 2000s that almost every emergency manager that, that I knew had been a prior a retired cop or a retired firefighter. And now it's about half and half, uh, people who have never been anything other than uh, a, a second responder, which is what I think emergency managers are, no, nothing but that, like myself, never been a, re- a first responder, and I come in seeing the bigger picture, and I have the theory in the background, I think, that, that helps me a little better than if I'm a retired firefighter. I'm not saying they can't do the job. I've met plenty of great emergency managers who are retired cops or firefighters. But I can always tell what their discipline was prior because that's where their comfort zone is, and they kind of lean a little more in that direction during the response sure. phase. 
Sure. You know, that's uh, um, you say that. And I remember we uh, we recently did a, a needs assessment for some trainings and looked at, found some data on emergency management and sort of looking at it over the last two decades. And it said exactly what you said, which is that it basically has transitioned from being kind of a secondary position within a first responder agency to really growing where you would have a dedicated career path and even subspecializations within emergency management. So it, it's tough to, to rem- um, sort of realize that the this field is very young in its current form. Um, and I don't mean that by the age of the people in it, but that the in its current form, this field is, has only really existed in the post-9-11 funding and the post-9-11 uh, world in its current uh, structure. Um, right. And so there's been so much transition over these last two decades. There was a really good article, though, getting back also to what you say about people not understanding emergency management. It's by Stephen Grill in The Atlantic called Is America Any Safer? And it was a look back at kind of 15 years post 9-11. And one of the things they talk about is that uh, in the Department of Homeland Security on the law enforcement side, when there's a large drug bust or a terrorist act is stopped or somebody's arrested, you know, the law enforcement side tends to always get – uh, positive news or it has that opportunity to get very positive news, but emergency management is really only a story when it doesn't work, right? Exactly. It's only a story, right? Yeah. Even, even like I said with my bosses, they, they, they know when I'm doing it wrong. They don't know when I'm doing it well. And, and I yeah. think that coordination piece is so hard to, to capture in a news story or so hard to capture in an after action. Well, Mark did a really good job of putting the proper people together uh, to, to get those portagons in the sandbags where they were needed almost immediately. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, they're going to talk about the first responders. They're going to go out, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I understand my role, but it, it really doesn't help when budgets get tight and you need additional help or your additional resources. Yeah, and so often, like you said, the marketing sort of plays into um, the funding politics of this, particularly at kind of a national level where it's, you know, we spent all this money. Aren't we prepared now? Can we stop, you know, funding into this? Um, and really good preparedness. It kind of reminds me a lot of public health, uh, my background, where good public health is the absence of disease. It's very difficult to, you know, make make a movie starring, you know, Matt Damon as myself, you know. I'm just assuming yeah, yeah, you play me, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, hey, yeah, just, all, right, all right, I... I Try not to take that the wrong way. <laughs> so in terms of uh, your direct relationship uh, um, with other folks in your emergency management position, have you seen ways – I know we've talked a lot about uh, politics during the preparedness phase. Have you seen it during responses that you've been a part of either in Ohio or elsewhere? Have you seen so situations you- where it's either really gotten in the way or it's actually helped out a lot, where the increased kind of political attention has uh, helped out? What are your thoughts on that? So, yeah, I, I think that – a lot of times that politics can help out when uh, a well-liked or high-powered political figure shows up. And they show up and they see firsthand the devastation of the hurricane or they see firsthand the devastation of the tornado. And they walk the streets and they're next to people with EMA jackets on and, and other politicians. And they're walking along and they're shaking hands and pretty much uh, doing what politicians do. But then they go back and they write the laws. Uh, that that extend those extend those disaster time frames. They lower the state's requirements or the local requirements for matches from 75 uh, percent uh, federal to 25 percent local match for disaster recovery. They might drop that to five and 95 percent, and that really helps out the the local jurisdictions. And that's I, I can see when the when you show up in an area is utterly devastated like Superstorm Sandy, 
Those things uh -huh. are required. The Post-Katrina Disaster Mitigation Act was written to, to address some of those long-term needs that, that New Orleans and those areas were going to have. Uh -huh. The bad side of politics getting involved is Katrina. When, when Mississippi got hit, and, and New Orleans did as well, and we don't talk about Mississippi. We seem to think Katrina only affected New Orleans, and that's because pre-landfall, the politics was making it impossible to get a consistent message out to people and get them evacuated. This is my opinion, my soapbox. Sure. So I, I think that the politics freehand only worsened post-landfall, post-levy failures, and the politics got in the way of good emergency management that was already occurring. A lot of the resources weren't available because they got wiped out by a storm surge that was a lot higher and a lot further inland than had ever been experienced. But because they were so focused on the political aspect of it, because as we learned in this last election, that's what's sexy and that's what people want to talk about, yep. it really it really hurt the people. And if we were to focus on, hey, we had these prepositioned, they got wiped out by the storm surge, now let's get these other things here. And not forcing the evacuation early and often in New Orleans caused the suffering at the Superdome, because the Superdome went exactly according to plan if you looked at the southern New Orleans uh, hurricane evacuation plan. The Superdome mm -hmm. was an area of refuge from the wind only. It was not going to have food, water, sanitation, power. I mean, all those things were known in advance for at least five days on a slow-moving three or four, fast-moving five. And Task Force Buckcast shows up five days right according to the plan or schedule, and we just do a bad job of saying that went according to plan. It was horrible. But more people should have gotten on those Amtrak buses and went to Baton Rouge. And it was politics that caused that, I believe. It's kind of like what we were talking about before. You know, you mentioned Mississippi and where they had uh, sort of this quietly competent response. And, you know, not to say that there weren't, there there were always issues, but but really um, had a very professional emergency management agency. The politics were either not in the way or lined up behind the mission at hand. You never heard about it. You never heard about right. what went right, right? It was the It was the tragedy of what went wrong. Uh, which is which is typically the story of emergency yeah, yeah. management when it makes the news. So a lot of great experiences and just a lot of great perspectives on how you know politics either directly or indirectly relates uh, to to the work that emergency managers do every day. Uh, Mark, how can people uh, track what you're doing and find out more about you if you want them to, of course? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't tweet very often, but at Mark Burtis, um is my Twitter page. Some, it's just weird stuff that tickles my brain that I, I throw out there. Sometimes it's emergency management related, sometimes it's not. But at Mark Burdis, M-A-R-C-B-U-R-D-I-S-S. -S. And then if they need to get a hold of me, they can always do that, uh, mburdis at gmail or www.markburdis.com. Uh, and that's that's how you'll get a hold of me if you need uh, get any questions, any follow-up questions or anything like that. That's that that's me in a nutshell. So uh, I, I know uh, I have a preparedness solutions company that they can look at on Facebook. I do disaster exercises um, pretty much nationwide, but I guess there was a, one thing that we didn't talk about that I, if I had to get up on a soapbox, it is, yep. uh, I think, funding how we do exercises in this country is broken. Um, I, I think it's most of the funding's gobbled up, and, and this is not Mark the contractor speaking, this is Mark the emergency manager speaking. Yes. Most of the funding is gobbled up by uh, just a handful of huge companies. Mm -hmm. And they design cookie-cutter exercises that have no soul. They go through the motions. You check the boxes, and it, you, you don't really learn a lot. Um, they come into your jurisdiction. They don't know your jurisdiction. They don't think through what you're trying to accomplish. And, and I think that 
funding that exercise, just quit doing crappy cookie-cutter exercises nationwide. I, I know HDP has us all doing similar exercises, but really focus on the objectives. What are you trying to accomplish? And then think outside the box of how to do those. So I, I think that's what I give talks on most is, is how to do better exercises. And mostly you, you add the things by subtracting, subtract all the boilerplate, subtract all the fluff, subtract all of the – I think it should be done this way because we paid this person a lot of money and this is how they said to do it. I, I think uh, better exercises are done with less information, less foresight, and it requires, it requires those locals sitting around the table with just a map of a train derailment in their downtown area discussing – what we should do, the, the high-color glossy vinyl situation manuals and stuff that the contractors are really good at producing add no value. But getting in a room and thinking about the what-ifs and forcing people to think through instead of just giving them questions, um, I think would be miles ahead in the, in the preparedness world uh, you know, we I, are, from where we are now. You know, I couldn't agree more, and I like the way you said it on really sort of, um, you know, taking the soul out of it is that uh, we can become so pressured uh, is probably the right word to meet deliverables that we forget about the intent of those deliverables and um, and really keeping that long view in mind is you may have a deliverable to do an exercise. There may be somebody who can come and help you check off that box. But if you're not actually advancing the preparedness, you know, what's going to have the best impact for your community um, and for your constituents? You know, I think back to uh, uh, when you and I were in the Master Exercise Practitioner Program and we had that model city because we all come from different jurisdictions. And for folks who take that course, they give you a, a fake city that has, is in a binder with all these details. So everybody's working for the same city rather than, you know, uh, 30 different home jurisdictions. And we designed these exercises. And I remember somebody had said that a prior cohort designed an exercise where Godzilla came out of the river and started terrorizing the town. And I love that example because, to me, there can be so much obsession over this scenario and making it yeah. sexy and making it attractive. And, and, and by doing that, it made it so absurd that the only thing that was real about the exercise was the response and the impact and how you were going to recover from it. And I loved how it just took all the BS off the table by just making it so absurd that you laughed at it and then focused on what was important. Exactly. So I, I know in the, we did a CDC – or we did, a, we did an, a zombie exercise in Shelby County before the CDC mm -hmm. came out with theirs and before The Walking Dead was huge. I'm a huge okay. fan of Max Brooks' book, and we did a, a zombie exercise for that very reason. It takes everyone's egos off the table, but it's still a public health disease. Mm -hmm. It's transmitted via bite. You can still do incident command. You can still do coordination, communication. You can still do traffic and access control. Everything you need to do can be done with a fictitious scenario, and it's better because everyone brings baggage for a flood event or a tornado event. They've already thought it through or they've already experienced it. Get that baggage out of there, and you actually start revealing real capability gaps and identifying real problems that you can improve upon. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And for the record, so Mark, you guys heard it here first. Mark did zombies for preparedness before it was cool. <laughs> I, I actually almost got uh, relief from the MEP program for bringing that as my uh, functional exercise. Oh, really? So I didn't realize you had that. Yeah, he called me into his office and said, uh, you, are you making a mockery of my program? And I tried to explain to him what I just did. And he's like, you better have an actual exercise for me. And luckily, I was in the business of doing exercises, so I had one on my thumb drive. So I was like, oh, no, here's one for you. So, Yeah, I think a lot of us almost got kicked out of that program, so <laughs> don't worry. <laughs>
But all, all kidding aside, thanks so much, Mark, for, for joining us. I know that before we started recording, too, you're, you were talking about helping out some neighboring counties with some wildfires and things that are occurring, too. So um, thank you for, for all the work that you're doing, and uh, just stay safe out there. All right. Thank you. Thank you, and have a great day. Joining me now is Richard Smith. Richard Smith is a Senior Solutions Associate at Viochi, that's the Virtual Emergency Operations Center. He, uh, prior to this, he was a Senior Associate with the Yale New Haven Health System Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response. And prior to that, he was a Public Assistance Disaster and Evaluation Specialist. Did I get that right? As a subcontractor for FEMA? Sort of, kind of close? Yeah, yeah, that's close enough. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right, great. Um, so thanks for joining us uh, today, Rich, and uh, talking to us about, uh, you know, a lot of the different sectors and different aspects of disasters that you've uh, seen. Thanks for having me. All right. So why don't we start with, uh, with your role as a subcontractor with FEMA. Um, and uh, I know you spent a lot of time down on the Gulf Coast uh, post-Katrina in the recovery phase. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what it was that you did? Yeah, so uh, shortly after Katrina hit, I was picked up as a subcontractor to FEMA to go down to southeast Louisiana um, and work on primarily, initially, the debris and demolition teams down in Plaquemine Parish, Louisiana. Uh, the idea there was there was massive devastation, so they had uh, FEMA was on the ground helping coordinate uh, debris and demolition operations across an entire parish or county, depending, uh, depending where you live. Uh, after that, uh, they, I was moved up to the... Uh, Transitional Recovery Office, doing uh, high-level reporting uh, across all sectors, ultimately, uh, from utilities to higher education um, to justice departments, fire departments, police departments, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of ended up baking into doing the high-level issue reporting and data gathering um, for stakeholders at the local level, but all the way up to headquarters and ultimately the executive uh, branch of the White House uh, for several uh, different reports as well. So you kind of served as that intersection between the recovery work that was going on on the ground and sort of processing it into kind of the full-time sort of government structures of FEMA and at the federal level? Correct, yeah. Because because Katrina was so unique in the, the spread of damage, but also the uh, public scrutiny that ensued after the response, uh, it was determined that the public assistance program and other programs down there by was part of PA mainly needed its own dedicated reporting staff to let... The people working with the individual applicants down there continue to do their job as much as possible, but still satisfy the need for information to boil up to headquarters and higher levels uh, to satisfy congressional inquiry or anything else that was going on. That's really interesting. And, you know, I, I, I hear in the aftermath of especially kind of some of these major disasters, there's this... Um, uh, almost an army of contractors that come in. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, in your experience, kind of what is the role of these private sector contractors? Uh, why is there a need for these contractors uh, for these agencies post-disaster? Right. So it's evolved. <coughs> excuse me. It's evolved over time. Um, its steady, its current state might not be exactly what it was back then, but uh, the idea was that FEMA has a cadre of staff that they have ready to deploy for any emergency or disaster, uh, depending on declaration. The problem is when you get catastrophic events or a, more of a meta event where they're already strapped thin as it is because of a prior occurrence or anything like that, they need to be able to surge up very quickly. So they have several contractors on hand to be able to provide that staff um, to support the recovery of any community, state, county, whatever it might be. Uh, typically speaking for large, massive disasters that are catastrophic like Katrina, even those contractors sometimes have to surge up. 
uh, but they do have a cadre right, ready to deploy at any time, and that's done at the direction of FEMA, and I believe now it's done on a six-month renewal basis with those contracts. Okay. And you mentioned you were preparing a lot of reports, collecting a lot of data, sort of sharing that upstream for congressional oversight and White House oversight for the agencies you were supporting. Uh, I'm curious, so what, what did you see as some of the, what were some of the kinds of data they were looking for? What kinds of questions? How were they sort of measuring progress after a disaster? So largely speaking, the immediately after a disaster, the progress is, is how, much, how much is getting picked up, so the debris and demolition side. Uh, separate from that, it's how much money is getting funneled in to support the recovery. A lot of times that ends up being one of the drivers. FEMA's criteria for how they disperse funds and everything like that can get in the way of that sometimes because the, the layperson in public might not always realize the idiosyncrasies about what is eligible for funding and what's not. What ends up happening is if somebody in FEMA says, look, this is not eligible, we can't support this for any reason or whatever the reason might be, the applicant has the, the recourse usually to go to the public, to the media, or to their uh, congressional leaders to ask for help. And if that happens, then the reporting side has to basically come back and say, look, this is, a, this is why they were denied this funding. Likewise, there could be other questions that go the other way, where they say, hey, why is it all of a sudden XYZ Prison just got a project worksheet for $50 million, or whatever it might be, because it's usually dollar and cent driven, and that money, when it hits a part of the system, gets funneled up so they can see it and flag it. Um, to make sure that things are getting done appropriately. So what do you see are some of the, the driving forces that you saw in terms of reimbursement? Is it to get the economic hub back up as quickly as possible? Is it equity? Is it simply just get as much money down there as quickly as possible? What were some of the, the things you saw? FEMA's, FEMA's driving force, typically speaking, is to get the place back to pre-disaster condition. That's what they like to do. Um, it's not what they like to do. It's actually by Stafford Act what they're designed to do. They so in doing so, the idea is to get the place rebuilt so they can start getting back to their normal daily routine. There's several parameters on where they can build new, where they can't build new, um, or as far as you know, doing a complete replacement of a structure or anything like that. But more or less, the goal that FEMA has is get things back to the way it was before this happened and get this community back on its feet and running and go home and wait for the next disaster. Um, that's really it's what it's one of their strong suits for as far as public assistance is concerned to be able to get in and do that. But the problem ends up being when there's something that's politically driven or where there's heightened sensitivity over a failed response effort or perceived failed response effort, it does slow things down. Mm. And, and, you know, there's always a lot of talk about, uh, and you mentioned it too, the rules and the bureaucracy that the average citizen doesn't necessarily know the intricacies of what's covered and what's not covered. Um, and the bureaucracy involved with these post-disaster funds, it seems like there's a lot to prevent fraud, but that preventing fraud also can be barriers to actually distributing the funds. Yeah. Yes and no. <clears throat> you have to understand the regulations for disaster at the federal level were designed to be gray and done so very deliberately. They wanted to have leeway to apply something to a very unpredictable situation. Mm -hmm. and, it, and when it comes to law, that's very difficult to do. The other drawback to that, though, is the people interpreting that guidance and interpreting those, those laws and acts can sometimes do it the wrong way. Whereas they think they're being good stewards of the American tax dollar, they also somehow see that as don't put too much money out there because it's going to look like you're just giving money to anyone. Right. So there's a lot of gray area, and that's where sometimes these disputes over eligibility can get drawn out for years and years and years at a time simply because it has to get interpreted. Yeah, we have a, a colleague at uh, uh, NYU who was uh, speaking one time about also how much, um, I think he used the term slippage, are you willing to accept it? Are you willing to accept a certain amount of money being lost, being used for something that you may not agree with uh, in exchange for being able to distribute it faster? 
Um, I like to use the example of if you go to a grocery store, right? There's a certain acceptance that you're going to have a certain level of shoplifting, but in order to prevent all shoplifting, you wouldn't be able to get anyone through the lines. You would have to create so much security and so much uh, that you couldn't actually get people through. When it comes to disaster reimbursement, I'd almost flip that around a little bit to say there's a certain level of acceptance people have to save money or to be the most cost effective or just to get the best deal that they can possibly find. Mm. And in this case, for envision the best deal is getting the most amount of money out of FEMA sometimes. So those are the people that are willing to collect all their coupons, fill up their shopping cart as high as they can go, and wait in line for two hours to get out of the cart versus the person that says, I just want to get on with my day. I have no problem paying $8.99 for a pound of cheese or something like that and just grabbing it and going. In terms of emergency managers and individuals, so if I'm sitting here, fortunately, I've never had to file a claim uh, with FEMA or in a post-disaster situation, but, you know, God forbid one day I have to, what's your advice to folks out there, both on the emergency management side who would have to be processing these, but also for individuals? How can people kind of best prepare or best sort of consider what kind of environment they'd be looking at? So. As far I can speak better to the public assistance side on this because uh, you have to understand public assistance and individual assistance are two very different things in FEMA. Why don't you uh, define those two as yeah. well, too? So public assistance is FEMA's mechanism to push money out to uh, state and local governments, tribal nations, um, and certain eligible nonprofit agencies, usually critical infrastructure like hospitals and that kind of thing. Individual assistance goes to the individual, so that would be for temporary housing, that kind of thing, for a specific person. I worked on the former. Um, As far as that goes, usually the best mechanism or the best advice I can give is to have everything in place ahead of the disaster for making sure your insurance policies are up to date, that you understand what your coverage is, um, that you can communicate that information clearly to somebody when they ask, but also have your financial tracking mechanisms in place too. The general rule of thumb for the funding from FEMA is if it, it has to be disaster related. For something to get paid for, it has to be a direct result of the disaster in one way, shape, or form. General rule of thumb. Because of that, you have to justify it. You have to justify that your labor expenditures were related to the disaster. You have to have a mechanism to do that. So have those in place. For the individual assistance level, um, the only advice I could say is you know be patient, but also communicate directly to FEMA as quickly as possible. Call 1-800-626-FEMA after a disaster, get that information in there. That was the number at the time. I assume it still is. Um, <laughs> but should fact check that <laughs> before posting. <laughs> or just go to www.fema.gov. But um, the other thing would be, you know, indivi- there's a big push out there, there has been for years, to promote, to promote that individual preparedness. Do your best to make sure that you've done everything you can to require the most, the least amount of assistance as needed, because then it will make your life easier and it makes everyone else's life, life easier too. Obviously, there are going to be circumstances where your house is destroyed or anything like that, and there's nothing that can be done to fix that other than going through your insurance coverage and everything else like that, and then looking at FEMA for temporary housing or whatever it could be. But do your best to prepare yourself and your family. That's the first and foremost thing you can always do. And, you know, as we sort of talk about what to do before a disaster, it also kind of uh, transitions us a little bit into some of the other work that you're doing at the Yale New Haven Health System Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response. You worked with a lot of the hospitals, a lot of that healthcare infrastructure that you mentioned as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of your work there as well, too? And in particularly, uh, I know there was a lot of work across, you know, changing grant deliverables, changing capabilities, regulations, joint commission requirements, sort of how, how you sort of helped uh, different health systems kind of navigate that. Yeah, so we had a unique environment at Yale in that it's something I haven't seen replicated anywhere else in the, in the country, uh, in my experience, where there was this group of people that were extremely professional and did fantastic work and didn't do it just within the walls of the Yale and Haven Health System. They did it elsewhere. They helped other hospitals, 
other public health entities, um, even non-healthcare related sectors. Um, in doing so, it, it really helped create a better knowledge going forward. So every client that we worked with had even better, had, we had an even better set of expertise working for them because of the knowledge that we gained going through everything that we did. Um, as far as regulations and everything go, the nice thing was we were a shop that, you know, we still support our own health system, so we still understood where healthcare came from. So we had a good knowledge of that, we had a good sympathy to that, um, but we also had much more than your average um, Joe in a hospital would have as far as understanding of the regulations. And we also had good um, relationships with at the federal level and at, with our regulators to be able to know really what they meant, what, what the intent was behind some of this guidance and where it would be going next as next step so we could better prepare people for that as well. And I remember you created a bunch of these different crosswalks and you and other folks on the team mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, crosswalking uh, the grant, the preparedness grant programs with the accreditation program requirements for emergency management and another one done across the different training uh, requirements. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, about the crosswalks. Yes, yes, crosswalks were something everyone was really actually liking. The, uh, the intent there was to be able to show people that if they met all the requirements for one, for one particular regulation, odds are they met a lot for another. Um, so it was really a good way to give visibility to that. There was different initiatives. Some were driven um, by state or locals. Uh, a lot was driven by the state of Connecticut in some instances. But the idea was to be able to take anytime something new came out, anytime they changed the healthcare preparedness capabilities, to crosswalk those to other requirements people already had to meet. So the Life Safety Code, NFPA 101, um, fire prevention codes or other codes that apply to hospitals like NFPA 99, accreditation codes like the Joint Commission, CMS requirements, and so on and so forth. And that work continues to go on to this day since I've left because it's something that's always needed. When it came to training requirements, this was uh, looking at really trying to cross the boundaries between civilian and military because they have to meet very different requirements in the military than we do on the civilian level. But at the same time, a lot of those requirements are very similar. So it's to actually kind of show these trainings that the military have developed might actually apply in the civilian world and vice versa. Yeah, you know, one of my favorites is when they, they change the uh, uh, the CMS role, the Center for, what is it, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Studies? Services. Services. Yep. All right. <laughs> but the uh, but basically, you know, most hospitals, most healthcare facilities get the, a significant portion of their funding through the reimbursement through Medicaid and Medicare. And they implemented this rule on emergency preparedness and freaked out the entire industry mm -hmm. because all of a sudden now it rose all the way up to the chief financial officer's office because it was it could potentially affect reimbursement. And one of the things that these crosswalks showed is that if you were already funded under the hospital preparedness program, if you were already accredited under joint commission, you were already doing most of the stuff that was required, if not all of it. It may be a different report, but the actual actions, the activities, the, the intent of it was already covered. And I thought that was really interesting that different groups with different kinds of oversight want to put their spin on emergency preparedness, but you sort of provide that level setting there that, look, if you're doing it right for one, you're probably doing it right <clears> for the others. And, you know, talking with, with the folks from CMS about that, um, their intent really wasn't to overburden hospitals by any means on that. It was actually to try to come up with a baseline, to say there's mm -hmm. all these disparate standards out there. If you meet this, you're going to meet a lot of those. Um, the, the drawback that came out of that regulation, though, isn't so much for acute care hospitals because they're largely in line with that. It was for the other facility types, dialysis centers, long-term care facilities, folks that just don't have that level of preparedness in their culture, but also necessarily don't have the professionals dedicated to making sure they meet those standards. So we've covered now money and we've covered regulation. 
now let's talk about communication and coordination. <laughs> so uh, now you're you're based at Viochi, um, and uh, it's it's essentially a, a software platform, right, to help with coordination uh, during a disaster and communication. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your work here and and what Viochi is. Right. So uh, Viochi is a, a unique product in in how it does what it does. There's a lot of other emergency ma management software platforms out there. Uh, what Draw, drew me to Viochi was really its ability to be uh, as versatile as it is. It was designed to be an emergency management platform to really assist with that communication and collaboration uh, aspect of, of response, but other aspects as well. Um, but the other thing that's really nice is it's, it's the way it lends itself to work process. To be able to say, we have a, a natural progression for whatever it might be, for a resource request that says the request comes in, we're going to triage it, it goes to one of these three people, and then they move it through the process all the way through um, actual you know, deployment and then demobilization where it comes back into inventory. The system is versatile enough that you can design that to be whatever it needs to be, but it works for emergency management and works for so many other things. So for how hospitals do environmental care rounding, that's a natural process with checklists. So you can do it does that as well. So it was really being able to take the expertise that I brought from the healthcare sector and bring it into this environment where we can keep on making it grow and, and keep on improving the software to make it do other things that it never might have been thought of to be able to do before and actually really apply it to that marketplace of healthcare and communication and collaboration um, in and outside of emergencies. So it seems almost like a natural progression from the crosswalk um, at Yale New Haven and um, the different requirements in, uh, in reimbursement and public assistance is that there are a lot of different factors that you have to keep track of. And mm -hmm. then if you're able to actually to create something to automate it, to create an app for that, or create something on the back end, and, and certainly not just Viochi, there, uh, but other platforms out there as well sort of seek to, uh, to sort of accommodate the added work for responding to all of these different sort of mouths to feed. And largely, you know, the, you know the, the nice thing about the versatility of that kind of a system, of this kind of a system, is that the system you're using to track your compliance with all these regulators, the system that you're using to make sure you're compliant, is also the system that you're using to apply to what the regulations actually regulate, and that's your ability to respond to a disaster. So you're actually using the same system to respond to the disaster that you're using to track how well you are prepared to do so. It's actually kind of a nice marriage of preparedness and response um, and, and ability to kind of adhere to those requirements and also best position yourselves for those reimbursements should the disaster arise and uh, rise to that level. Uh, I, I think you've started talking about this a bit already, um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about grant funds and organizational budgets and sort of the, what goes into preparing and how organizations are given the resources to prepare and how that kind of fits in with your work as well, too. Right. So um, there's a number of initiatives out there that funnel down to different organizations, be it urban area security initiatives, be it uh, hospital preparedness program, public health emergency preparedness program. All these different programs out there have grants, and the intent of those grants is to really help the grantee bolster their level of preparedness, or sub-grantee, depending on the structure of the grant. Those different mechanisms of, of support have a number of different things. For years and years and years, early on after 9-11 and in their early inceptions was to buy stuff, right? It was to buy uh, different decon outfits or whatever it might be. But lately, it's been process and system-oriented to better enhance their, the ability of the organization to respond, not because they have the right stuff, but because they have the right systems in place and that they know what they're doing. So to be able to fund exercises and be able to support those exercises and be able to implement the different systems they need to communicate 
and to push things out to people and to be able to track progression and then ultimately feed into an after action report to satisfy reporting requirements as well. Yeah, and so that's a really interesting thing is that you have to, on the one hand, there's a lot of, uh, let's say, bureaucracy imposed on the preparedness process because it, it, it kind of comes with the funding. It requires a certain degree of reporting to be able to let Congress know, to let the White House know, to let whoever is, is sort of signing off on the funding know where everything is going. But then underneath all that, there's still this intent to, to actually get more prepared and mm -hmm. to actually be more prepared. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, as you mentioned, the fact that it comes from so many different sources, there's always sort of this challenge of having to reconcile all that with different places. So it's interesting through the crosswalks, through software solutions to be able to unify that. So that's sort of in a single place, you're doing all of that work and being able to generate reports for um, whichever funder is uh, asking the questions and to answer in the style in which they want their answers. Right, right. And the, and the, and the, tr and the challenge is these reporting requirements don't necessarily always at least at least on their face seem to answer the question that needs to be answered is are we better prepared because of all this money we've shelled out right um, so there's always been this question looming for years now on how do we measure preparedness and the problem is it's not something you can necessarily apply something like a scientific method to right you can't have a control group that doesn't do anything to prepare and then have another group that does have do everything to repair and then apply a disaster to them because people would die so it's this really big challenge that they're facing but the bottom line is they, the intent is there to make us better prepared. It's just how do we actually demonstrate that? Yeah, and that's one of the things we find in academia that's very, they're kind of two problems that we really face. One is uh, the denominator problem where we can tell you, you know, how many people are trained, but can we tell you how many people should be trained? Mm -hmm. We can tell you how many houses were rebuilt, but then a lot of times people leave off how many need to be rebuilt. And right. so what is the ratio and the proportion? Mm -hmm. We did a literature review sort of looking at performance measures for a project we're engaged with to uh, find, you know, what are some true evidence-based preparedness measures. And we found a tremendous amount of literature complaining about the lack of literature yeah. on the subject. That's true. Um, there were a few out there, and the best cases that we found were, um, the, uh, there were some interesting ones where there were maybe two hurricanes a couple of years apart, and mm -hmm. some things were implemented in between. North Carolina was an example of that. Um, but then also looking to other fields and look at operations research. but you know, day-to-day -day operations aren't the same as disaster operations. You have a lot more practice. You have a lot more data with day-to-day -day operations. And not to digress or anything, but it's just one of those things where, you know, there's two very different communities now in the, in the preparedness realm. One is the academic, academia, and then there's this operational-based component where, um, and, they, and they, there seems to be headbutting here and there. And the thing that cracks me up is how often in this preparedness arena we've used the term best practices, mm -hmm. where we really have no def definition of what meets the term best practice other than yeah, we know this works. This worked that one yeah, time. Yeah, this worked really well, and everybody's doing it now, so it must be a best practice. Yeah. There is no other qualifier. We found some really <laughs> circular definitions, too, where best practices, as you say, and then you follow the references on where that best practice came from, and it becomes a sort of a circular reference chain without mm -hmm. ever, you know, there being any sort of demonstration. I mean, ideally, right, like you said, you'd have an experimental approach. You would have a case and a control, but, you know, the, the real world just doesn't work that way. Yep. And so um, it's been interesting to see after recent disasters there be funding to conduct research with the data from the disaster and mm -hmm. to not let a disaster go by where we sort of lose that information that could be used to, to tell us how to do things better. And there's been a lot of great work that's been done around vulnerable populations um, and that kind of thing to find out why people don't evacuate and um, how you can best address these vulnerable populations to make sure they're protected in advance of a disaster. So there's a lot of good work going out there. It's definitely 
it's it's definitely getting there, but um, it is a challenge because you know going back to the political side of things and how funding is allocated. If you can't justify the benefit of the funding, then the funding goes away. So there needs to be a mechanism to adequately justify all this funding that's been going out there. And in lieu of that, it will not always exist because they will get rolled back saying, look, we, we, we're not going to keep spending money for the sake of doing it. We've been spending this for years. People should be prepared. And if you can't tell me otherwise, then, you know. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's an excellent point that uh, ultimately there are very – specific business questions and political questions about the funding and about what the funding is contributed to that want very specific answers mm-hmm. that yeah. sometimes the data isn't available for but that you know our investors Congress the taxpayer you yeah. know they want to know uh, how more how much more prepared they are as a result of their investment and there in healthcare there are two things that drive preparedness and neither which neither of them is benevolence or anything like that it's I have to do this to meet regulation or I can do this because somebody's giving me money to do it. Mm-hmm. Other than that, very little will get done in the realm of preparedness. So it's a really inter- it's a really you know dire time in some in some people's minds right now because if any funding does go away, the only thing that will keep people doing preparedness is going to be regulation. Otherwise, there are other priorities out there. Yeah. So on that cheery note, <laughs> um, so Rich, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing and uh, uh, follow you around if, uh, if you're open to that sort of thing? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to uh, communicate with anyone that has any questions or wants to follow up or anything. I'm happy to show them anything that I'm doing currently or talk about any of the uh, prior initiatives I've worked on. Um, easiest way to get a hold of me is probably by email. Um, it's uh, usually how I respond to everything. So it's uh, richard.smith at bochi.com. It's one of the few times in my life I've gotten an email with just first name, last name. Um, but uh, otherwise, feel free to go to bochi.com and get in touch with our sales folks. Um, to uh, They know how to get a hold of me as well. And that's, and that's spelled V-E-O-C-I, uh, Virtual Emergency Operations Center. What's the I stand for? On the internet. On the internet. So yeah. V-E-O-C-I.com. Yeah. So on the internet, on the internet. Yeah, it is. Go to the internet funny. to go to something on the internet. <laughs> no, well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for sharing with yeah. us just a wide range of experiences, but still with this common thread of sort of having, you know, one mission with many funders, many masters to, to please, but but ultimately boiling down to some of the same uh, core ingredients for, for getting the work done. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity, Jeff. Appreciate it. All right, that does it for episode three. Thanks to our guests for being on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening in. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you receive this fine podcast. And uh, keep up the conversation on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. If you want to say something to us a little more privately or you're interested in being on the show, send us an email. We're DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. Just rolls right off the tongue. Until then, thanks for listening, and stay safe out there. (laughs) 